Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 100 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. Today's show features my interview with Kristen C., who joined me from the other side of the world in the land down under. Actually, she did the Zoom call with me from the Australian bush outside Sydney. Kristen's story is not unlike many that you hear in AA. Though she grew up in a home where her father was a practicing alcoholic, she didn't start drinking until she was 18. But from that time until she quit more than 20 years ago, her personal and work lives were the stuff of alcoholic chaos, with intermittent periods of soft-willed attempts to stay dry. Though she functioned in her job and home duties, Kristen's alcoholism got steadily worse. It reached a crescendo of despair when her marriage and parenting of two small children were hanging in the balance on a very thin string. After one false start in AA, she got sober and came into the program willing to do whatever was necessary to maintain sobriety. Here's something that really intrigues me about Kristen's story. Because AA didn't truly evolve in Australia until the 1950s and 60s, the growth of the program, especially in rural areas, was both slow and tedious. Perhaps it was the geography of the enormous but sparsely populated continent where drinking is sewn into the cultural fabric. Or perhaps it was the pervasive anti-Yank sentiment that was common in the country. Whatever it was, Kristen found that her early days were spent in meetings with AA members who were staying sober, but largely not working the steps. Among the limited number of women in the program at that time, she encountered difficulty in finding a sober AA woman who would sponsor her through the steps. Finally, at five years sober, Kristen asked a senior male member, who subsequently worked her through all 12 steps, with the condition that she would pass it on to others by taking them through the steps. Learning how she has fulfilled that service promise over and over again is to both admire her commitment and marvel at the growth of the program in a country where it is very much needed. In many ways, Kristen's story illuminates the joy she takes in helping others while strengthening AA's vital place in her country. So, while I will ask you to ignore the technical glitches of my Zoom call to the other side of the planet, I invite you to relish the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my new friend and AA sister, Kristen C. Hello, my name is Kristen and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Kristen. It's so good to have you on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. When we met last week or a couple weeks ago, uh, it was at a meeting out of Melbourne, Australia. Uh, yes. You did such a wonderful job chairing and leading that meeting. I thought, this is a woman who I think has some really good quality sobriety behind her, the way you talked about the program and your own recovery, that I wanted to get to know you and also allow your experience, strength, and hope to hopefully touch other people. So many, many thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. You said you're in the bush. Now, I mean, I, I don't know that much about Australia, but what exactly is the bush? So the bush is rural Australia. Uh-huh. And we have a property that is pure bush. 
we release wombats on our property and it's quite remote hmm. and that's the classification of bush and uh, is is it really that big yeah it is and i think australia is quite surprising it's virtually the size of the united states but it's very hmm. sparsely populated so i'm actually not from melbourne uh-huh. i actually reside in sydney but i used to commute back and forth to melbourne every week for my job and I started attending that meeting in Melbourne, and as soon as COVID hit, I went straight to Zoom, uh-huh. and I found that meeting attracts newcomers, and also we see a lot of newcomers get well mm. and sober and happy in that meeting because we are welcoming whilst really retaining the structure in the principle of AA. So it's my favourite meeting to watch people get well, and especially the newcomers, you know, when they grab the program with both hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful meeting. Yeah, it's always a good feeling. I was in a meeting at noon, a live meeting today, and there was one guy who was brand new. There was one guy coming back for his second day. And yet in that meeting, there were about 10 of us who have over 35 years sobriety and all different shades in between. And everybody was so focused on those newcomers that it was extraordinary. And the real test of the effectiveness is do they come back? And the ones who do usually will get something more from it. Exactly. Do you find that to be the case? Oh, absolutely. And that's why we really focus on newcomers, but not making them under the spotlight, which is very uncomfortable for newcomers. So when we have somebody for their very first meeting, we switch it to an identification meeting. Mm -hmm. But we also tell everybody to share their experience, strength and hope and not cross-talk or direct advice to the newcomer, because that can be disastrous. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up in in Sydney? Uh, No, I actually grew up in Canberra, but have been in Sydney for uh, 25 years. Mm -hmm. And that is part of my story because, you know, coming from a small town, which is our capital, Mm -hmm. and coming to Sydney, I was still drinking. Mm. Um, And the sensory overload of being in Sydney really escalated my drinking. You know, I used it as anaesthetic and to calm down at the end of the day. So, you know, that's where the progressive nature of the disease took off was when I moved to Sydney. It's a great reason to drink more. It's a great reason, especially if you're not as well connected. In fact, I've seen a number of people over the years who had strong programs in Houston move elsewhere and they slipped because the meetings there never compared and and they didn't know people very well. And of course, you and I know that the program is what you put into it, not what you take out of it. So you grew up in Canberra. What was your childhood like? What's your family of origin? Is there a history of drinking or alcoholism in your family? I'm probably the exception to the rule. I mean, I identify now that my father was and is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, my mother definitely wasn't. So when I hear a lot of people's stories, you know, I didn't pick up a drink at 13. Mm-hmm. In fact, I came from a very stable background, loving family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do believe looking at the lineage, you know, that I was genetically born as an alcoholic, but it didn't really take off till I was, you know, started drinking at 
you know, 18, which is the legal age. So it was bubbling along, but, you know, my childhood and my schooling wasn't extraordinary, but I experimented like all my friends, got drunk a lot, and the difference was is that my friends started to pull things together and I just kept going (laughs) (laughs) in a big way. (laughs) You know, I could only track my history with the knowledge of what this disease entails when Mm. I came into AA in 2001. So your sobriety date is? The 1st of March, 2002. So I'm coming up on 21 years. So 20 years sober. What were your perceptions when you were a kid of what an alcoholic was? Predominantly a loser, you know, somebody that, you know, couldn't get their act together. You know, like I watched my father's family, you know, has a lot of alcoholics in it. Mm -hmm. It became natural to see people drinking heavily. And it was only till later that none of my siblings are addicts. So Mm. I didn't have any context, a benchmark. You know, and, you know, I still have friends that are practicing alcoholics, Mm -hmm. you know, and everybody copes with it in a different way. But, you know, now I see the damage and the loss through practicing alcoholism in my family. You know, my uncles and my father, they're all alcoholics and families, you know, are very deeply affected by it now. How do they respond to you in a just a general setting, getting together with family? Is your sobriety in AA ever a topic of interest or conversation to them? No, I've always found that um, alcoholics tend to avoid the subject, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, because it's a reflection of what they're going through. So, you know, none of my friends or family would consider me an alcoholic. I thought it was really important that he knew that. So when I got sober, a lot of people were surprised Mm -hmm. and the alcoholics were shocked Mm. in my circle. And a lot of people came up and were testing whether they were alcoholic because my friends knew me very well. So, you know, I was very open with my dear, dear friends. Mm-hmm. And so people would say, but but I drink a lot. I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. And I said, you do not experience the sum total carnage of my drinking. And also it's what happens between my ears that is the difference between you and me. You know, even to this day, I I never pick people as alcoholic. You know, normally people have to tell me their story. I certainly don't judge. And the beauty of being in AA is I have empathy for my father. My siblings don't. They just see the external chaos of his drinking. Was he drinking when you were a child? Yeah, yeah. Both my mum and dad, you know, drank probably substantially every night. Do you think that that influenced your decision to not drink until you were older? No, not at all, because I didn't see it as abnormal, hmm. honestly. And I, I never correlated my father's drinking with his mannerisms. I just thought he was just a controlling um, father and, you know, with outbursts of anger and, yeah, it was sort of walking on eggshells around my dad. But I never correlated the two. Yeah. Did that make it tougher for you as a kid growing up in a household with a dad who was an alcoholic? 
Yeah, because all of that comes with alcoholism, the way my mum tried to placate him and the fact that he came from a very alcoholic upbringing, that he tried to quash any kind of confrontation. So we never learnt how to rationally speak our truth from the right motive, you know, when emotions were high. So it did impact all of us, Mm -hmm. you know, that those outbursts, but not being able to speak up, but not as adversely as the stories I hear, you know, in AA. And like you were saying earlier, I came in in 20 years ago in Australia. Mm -hmm. And 20 years ago in Australia, AA was quite a challenging place to be because the majority of meetings were identification. And Australia was late to the peace with compared to America because it came to Australia in the 40s, 50s. And it was post-war, anti-Yanks. And Australia took a long time to get up to speed about what the program was about. So, you know, we were a bit behind the eight ball and that was really challenging to have hour and a half meetings of identification with little structure. When you say identification, Kristen, I, I want to make sure that I understand exactly what that is for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with that. Yeah. So there are so many formats today, which, you know, I'm so lucky to experience mm-hmm. and in the latter part of my recovery. So identification means that somebody would get up and speak and just tell their story. Mm. So they were predominantly drunk logs. What I was like, what I was like, what I was like. And it wasn't even what I was like. It was what it was like. So it's not even the way of how it works because we have to tell our story because our perspective of what it was like Mm -hmm. was inaccurate. They'd say what it was like, what it was like, what it was like. Then I got sober and I'm really happy and um, happy, joyous and free. And I felt like standing up and saying, well, tell your face that (laughs) because you don't seem happy. (laughs) You do not seem free. You seem angry. You know, like it was almost a competition. I don't need to be told how to drink. Yeah. You know, or hear somebody else's experience. I do need the identification. But nowadays, I rarely go to identification meetings. I go to topic, big book studies, steps meetings, daily reflections, as you went to our, our Melbourne meetings. That was a very topical meeting focused on solution. That My favorite meetings are the ones that do focus on solution. It's been my experience, Kristen, that the identification type meetings where the people who are still maybe not even committed to going to AA or they haven't admitted to their innermost self that they are alcoholics, those meetings don't last very long. They don't, they don't stick. They're not the long-term meetings that are around for 10 or 20 or 30 years. They kind of come and go unless there's a really strong leader and making sure that time limits are adhered to and that as people start going off on tangents and they're running over time that they're cut off. And I know sometimes people say, oh, you shouldn't have cut that guy off. Well, we've got some structure and rules around here, don't we? You're shaking your head. Yes. Sounds to me like you've experienced that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And when we started the Zoom version of the Melbourne meeting, we were having a lot of newcomers and it was starting to go off the rails. So 
my friend Brad and I, and he has 35 years sobriety and you know, I have 20, Mm -hmm. we decided to be co-secretaries to bring the structure back to the meeting and help people navigate early sobriety in meetings. Mm. You know, one of the important parts of a meeting is before and after the meeting. So I am very strongly focused on if somebody comes into a Zoom meeting, Mm -hmm. they don't have the alternative of going to another group of people and having a chat they're stuck with whatever's happening in that Zoom meeting prior to the meeting. So we've always emphasised that we welcome everybody to the meeting. If anybody speaks of anything other than fellowship, then we just keep talking over the top of them (laughs) until, you know, it brings it back. And also we introduced that to share your own personal experience, please focus on I statements rather than you statements. And Somebody came to the meeting and said, you know, that had a lot of sobriety and Mm -hmm. said, that's great because I forget sometimes that I'm not here to give advice and I'm not here to speak on others' behalf. And that means that we just have two two of us as co-secretaries and all the people giving service are very new in sobriety and that is a wonderful thing to witness. You're modelling the way a good meeting is run when you're doing that. You're instructing the others on how to do it. And slowly and over time, those kind of meetings do build and they get very strong foundations when there are people like you and your friend, Brad. When you you got to AA, you said it was kind of the Wild West time of AA down there. People refer to AA as Wild West in some of the places that it just gets started. You said you hadn't drank through school. You said 18 was when you started. So I'm assuming that's about the time people either go into a job or university. When you first took a drink, what were your expectations? Oh, just to fit in, basically. You know, we have a big drinking culture in Australia. So I think it was, you know, just to be a part of whatever was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, my drinking didn't escalate, you know, straight away, but it got messy really fast. <laughs> but I saw a lot of messy people around me that, mm-hmm. you know, as it turns out, are not alcoholics. So I still didn't twig that this was a problem. Were you comparing yourself the way you were when you were drinking to the way they were? They seemed to have it together and you didn't? No, there was plenty of messy people that made me look good. <laughs> I get that. You know, that continued for quite a while because. You know, we were really out there. You know, we were partying hard. We were out in the bush. We were just having a really good time. And all my friends, you know, we were out doing stuff. So it wasn't a sad, you know, drinking during the day. We were out there living life, you know, really climbing, then going to a band and, you know, partying hard and, and so forth. So I really didn't see the issue until I couldn't stop. How did you see the difference in consequences between partying out in the bush, as you were mentioning, or having this wide open place to party and the consequences of, let's say, living in a city? Were there fewer consequences? Were fewer people getting into trouble or driving drunk? What was the culture like amongst the folks that you hung out with? We had quite a liberal alcohol limit in Canberra when I started drinking and it was a bit higher than the rest of the nation. So we kind of got away with a lot more. Why is that? 
because Canberra's different. <laughs> it's a different state and different laws and so forth. So you could have a 0 0.08 limit before you got done and the rest of the country was 0 0.05. So the first time I got pulled over by the police, I actually saw the police car. I was leaving a party that I didn't want to be at. Mm -hmm. And I went through a red light, knowing the police car was behind me. He said he could smell the fumes before I even got to the car. And he didn't, he took me into the van and I breathalyzed and I must have registered 0.079999. And so that was my experience is, you know, I can be that drunk and get away with it. So he let you go? He had to because I was below the limit. Did you get cited for going through a red light or anything like that? Yeah, <laughs> I think I was sort of borderline red light. I was just sort of, I always drove slowly. So I sort of rolled over the line, you know, when it was orange. So so you, you didn't have that many consequences? No, not at all. What was your experience with alcohol itself? Was it mostly drinking beer or was it hard liquor? What? Uh, it was beer and wine. So my parents in the latter stages of my drinking were growing grapes and my sister's a winemaker. So I loved the red wine when I could get my hands on it, mm -hmm. but the beer was staple. It's kind of like the national drink down there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Still is. So we're talking about a time that when you started drinking and moving into your 20s, what were the next milestones in the progression of your drinking over those years with re with regard to your personal relationships and your career or job aspirations? I went overseas in my 20s. I got this brilliant trip to ride a motorcycle on the Silk Route. And that was a real milestone in my drinking. You know, I started in Paris, ended up in Astrakhan, most amazing cultural experience, but it was overload. And that is when I remember that every night I had to get drunk to cope with. A lot of people were paying attention to me because I was young, female, from Australia, the only Australian on the trip. Mm -hmm. And it was like being shot into celebrity status. And I did not handle it well. I thought mm. I was just going on a motorcycle ride. And I looked around and I was wondering why everybody else wasn't getting drunk because of, you know, the experience, mm -hmm. you know, that it was so full on, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's when, you know, I missed out on some opportunities because I was getting pretty hammered every night on that trip. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I did a great job as like nothing happened, but, you know, I didn't do a great job as an ambassador, you know, like in terms of doing photography and documenting the event. I was just hanging, you know, I was just hanging on. Before you went on the trip, did you anticipate that you would drink as much as you actually did? No, no, not at all. And that's the cunning, mm -hmm. baffling, powerful part of the disease because I came back to Australia completely besotted by France. Um, I just wanted to go back to Paris and live there. And, you know, it was such a great experience that the drinking was taking off. You know, it was becoming a part of necessity you know, in me functioning 
in any shape or form. So, and then that was the second big milestone is that I went over there alone thinking I like my own company. Mm -hmm. And that's where the only way I coped was through drinking. And in the end, I had to come home. It just, I had to drink to make a decision. I had to drink Mm -hmm. to, you know, chill out at the end of the day. And, you know, and I still didn't tweak that that was a problem. I just thought that's how I cope. So your life was going on around you and alcohol, even though it was at the root of your problems, was kind of brushed aside? Yeah, absolutely. How how did drinking interfere with your work life? Well, <laughs> big time. In, in the end, uh, I was a photographer. I was a freelance photographer. Mm-hmm. And I would photograph events for editorial and... I used to have this rule that I would only pick up a drink at events once the cameras were in the bag and I was done. And my drinking started during the job. And then it started to impact my ability to do the job. You know, a classic example was, you know, I was shooting film in back in those days and um, I was photographing the opening of a major building at the University of New South Wales Mm -hmm. and I was drunk and the previous prime minister was there and huge fan of uh, Gough Whitlam and I never did that as a photographer (laughs) you know because my job was behind the camera and I got so drunk I lost a roll of film that was actually the opening of this building and I'm crawling around in the car park looking for this role of film, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to me, the client knew that I was drunk and I dropped the roll of film and had picked it up. And I went out the next morning to comb that car park in the building to find it. And that's really how my life started to go, you know, to clean up the carnage of my drinking the next day. What was the outcome of that? Did they face you down with that? No. No? No, not at all. Not at all. In fact, I never had a client uh, comment or pull me up on it. In fact, my uh, biggest client, I got drunk at one of the events that um, she got together and I was just rabbiting onto husband, you know, drunk, you know, just talking dribble. Uh-huh. Once I got sober, I still worked with that client and produced the best work. <laughs> so, yeah, it never played out, but it did play out in other areas of my life, you know. It, it almost sounds like a, a charmed life for an alcoholic to be able to get off the hook each time. Yes. When I'm interviewing people of celebrity, that they are seriously enabled by people around them who either are drinking and using drugs just like them, or their livelihood depends on that person being happy. So they really don't go out of their way to face them down with what the truth is. So you didn't have anybody pull you aside and say, look, Kristen, this this is getting out of hand. You had to discover that for yourself? No, um, my husband was the only person that said, this is not how I want to live. And we were together and, you know, we had two children before we got married and um, our kids were quite young when my husband, who was my best drinking buddy, just said, if you don't get your shit together, I'm out of here. Hmm. And 
it was multiple attempts, you know, kind of like Bill's story, you know, his promises to his mm-hmm. wife. And I just say, you know, just give me a couple of weeks and I'll really get it together. And it failed every time, of course, because nothing was going to stop me drinking. But he planted the seed that this was not okay. And he actually, at the time, unknown to me, he was trying to figure out how he could get custody of our two children Hmm. because he was really ready to go. And he was a reasonably heavy drinker. So that was the turning point where I knew the game was up. Did that factor into his drinking? Did that factor into your resistance to stop? At that stage, he was drinking light beers and he was very busy with photography. So he would often not drink the night before a shoot or a job. And he was coming to me because he was getting increasingly nervous about my behavior whilst on a binge. So I always thought it was romantic, but whenever I got drunk, I found water. So I was living up in Darwin, jumping into a croc infested Darwin Harbour, drunk. I would swim in dams in the middle of winter, um, hmm. in the, you know, on my parents' property. I would swim in estuaries at night. The sea, which is prone to sharks, big time. And he could see this escalating, you know, that I would just go out and just do outrageous things while I was drunk. Was that just being adventuresome or knowing the risks that you faced? Were you just, did the alcohol just do away with those? Yeah, of course. I mean, to jump into a crocodile infested harbour off a wharf is madness. And I was also getting other people to do it because I thought it was so funny. Oh my. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so I was endangering other people's lives and, you know, I would swim with people. Well, that's the um and Stephen I remember standing on the sidelines holding my clothes when I came out of a blackout and just he was such a sad figure on the side just watching me just do whatever I liked when on the grog we'll be right back My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. Before we continue with my interview with Kristen C., a quick production note. The audio on my end of the interview was diminished by my Zoom connection that day. Please disregard the quality of the audio and enjoy the rest of the interview. And we're back. Your husband confronted you on your drinking. How how many years into your marriage did this happen? And was it after or before you had children? It was after we had children. 
it would have been about three years into our marriage. So our kids were around two and three. How was your parenting of those two small children affected by your drinking? You know, with having children, being, you know, a full-time worker and being faced with a new vocation and not being domestically inclined, it was really stressful. So when Jack was born, Mm. I was just Mm. hanging on by my fingernails, you know, like it was it was hair raising and part of my story is driving drunk with the kids in Mm. the car. And I was just thinking that I know for a fact that my higher power kept them safe because I don't think I ever would have come into AA if I had done anything. I just would have told myself because, Mm -hmm. you know, Jack was so precious and then Tilda came along and, I, you know, I loved them dearly, but nothing could stop that phenomena of craving and that need to drink. So, um, you know, I often think I got sober when Jack was five and Tilda mm-hmm. was three going on four. Wow. And that was very difficult because, you know, the wheels fell off when I got sober. So, and having two little kids and two jobs at the time, it it was rehab wasn't an option. I'm kind of glad because if I ever went into a rehab, I don't think I would have got sober. I had to do it in situ. I was in my thirties by that time. You're in your thirties. You're married for about three years. You've got these two little tykes, two little kiddos. And you're drinking despite all that going on. Your husband's fed up and he is taking active steps to try and assure that he will get custody of the children so that you don't put them in danger. I don't think he knew the extent of my drinking driving. He was just fed up being around me. So, you know, the deceit around my drinking because he wasn't with me obviously when I was uh drink driving you know there's a few occasions where you know it it was so dangerous you know and that often made me think that I wasn't supposed to be with my partner because subconsciously I couldn't stop drinking for him unbeknownst Mm. to me I couldn't Mm -hmm. stop drinking because I was an alcoholic and I really didn't take it seriously I, I didn't even mm-hmm. know he had plans to remove the children, try and get the children. He told me that when I got sober. That would have been pretty heavy yeah. to hear while you were in your cups, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he was he was definite. He'd he'd had enough. Maybe he did fear for the children's safety. I never heard that from him, but I think mm-hmm. he just didn't want to be around the chaos. It sounds to me like your life was kind of spiraling out of control at that point. What did you attribute that to? I mean, you're drinking and yet you're continuing to drink. Were you acknowledging the fact that you were an alcoholic and couldn't stop? Or were you always passing it off on other things and alcohol was secondary? Yeah, the latter. Alcohol was secondary. Um, I thought my life was a series of unfortunate events. And if you were married to my Uh husband, you drink too. And and I honestly believed, you know, that horrible awareness when I realized that Mm. things were not getting better and that I couldn't control my drinking. 
was the mm-hmm. hard reality. But, you know, I often think about my history um, and my story coming into AA because mm-hmm. I tried to get into AA a year before and, you know, my husband was very supportive and I turned mm-hmm. up to a meeting that had been cancelled and so I walked into what I thought was the right room and they all burst into song and it was choir practice. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> I backed out of there very quickly and I thought, well, if this is AA, I'm out of here. <laughs> and um, That's right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the la- there was a lady outside the meeting who was also trying to attend an AA meeting, and she said to me, mm-hmm. do you want to go for coffee? And I thought, how fabulous. I can find out about this gig without having to go, you know, before I go. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this is such an important part of my journey. She was yeah. eight years sober, and she was angry and bitter, and she rammed every AA cliche down my throat Mm. and she was thumping the table saying eight years and still a day at a time and I just went I'm out of here that Mm. sounds painful and she was she said I was a top shelf drinker and I've lost all these years and I've lost everything and she was angry at eight years sober and so it took me a whole year to come back to a meeting and why it's an important part of my story is because I tried mm-hmm. everything else in that last year. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like she was a woman who had eight years of sobriety, but who wasn't doing the work to get through what appears no. or what sounds like a lot of anger and, and frustration with sobriety. Yes. And People used to say that, you know, people hit a wall at seven, eight years sober. And in Australia, if you're a woman, it was really hard to find female sponsors that could take you through the steps as it was written in the big book. So, of course, I experienced the same at seven years sober because I could not find a sponsor to take me through the steps. So mm-hmm. I kind of look back on her story and just feel really sad because I never saw her again in the mm-hmm. meeting. So I don't know whatever happened to her, but, you know, I exhausted every other avenue and why she was important is that I don't know if I would have got sober from my first meeting at that time because maybe I wasn't done yet because a year later, I went to a funeral service for a friend's daughter that had drowned at 10 years old and they never found her. That little girl gave me a gift because we had a funeral service. You know, that day was indicative of my drinking. I thought, when is it okay for me to have a drink? Because, you know, the father of the daughter is mm-hmm. a practicing alcoholic and the family were all cracking beers at 10 o'clock. It had nothing to do with the loss of, of Bridie. Mm-hmm. You know, she died in an accident and um, with two others. And I was not there for them. I was just completely focused on when can I have the next drink? When can I have the next drink? That next mm-hmm. day, that little girl gave me a gift and I 
didn't have a drink. I just said, that is enough. I can't do this anymore. The hangover wasn't extraordinary, but I went back to Sydney, attended my first meeting on, um, you know, probably shortly after the 1st of March and stayed sober from that first meeting. And you haven't looked back. Well, I did look back. (laughs) I mean, the wheels fell off when I went to AA. That happens to a lot of us. It sounds like that was one of those God moments that, that little girl, like you so. said, gave you gave you a gift of either seeing yes. what the future would 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 be like for you, or the sadness and emotion can snap us into a moment of clarity. Go to your first meeting. Yep. What were your first meetings like after that bad experience a year earlier? So I went to a local meeting, and I thought it was Alcoholics Anonymous, so we never got to know each other. So we just all sat in rows and looked forward. And I thought the chair <laughs> was the psychologist. <laughs> oh, and, um, but then I quickly understood what what it was all about. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I didn't want to be the new person on the block, that's for sure. And the meetings were relatively strong. I identified with the first person that got up to speak. That was a miracle. And there was good sobriety in that meeting. And there was a lot of, you know, happy, joyous and free. You know, like the when we came out of that meeting, it was like people tumbling out of a pub. You know, it was lively. I was just so relieved that I had people from every walk of life. That was huge for me. I didn't come to AA to get good, to be good. I came to deal with the carnage of my drinking and I didn't want to be a good person who wears beige, Jesus and ginger beer kind of thing. So I was very mindful. So people, you know, they they were pretty gutsy and out there and that was a relief. Mm -hmm. But my husband thought I joined a cult (laughs) and he... (laughs) He was wondering Uh why people were ringing me and why I had to go to so many meetings. And I had two little kids. So if I made two meetings Mm -hmm. a week, I was lucky. And Mm -hmm. people were saying, you know, 90 meetings in 90 days. And I had no chance of doing that. And I couldn't hang out in cafes with people. But there was a pilot light on that little flame that said to me, you are in the right place. You know, the meetings kept me sober. They really did because I knew that other people were going through what I was going through. So, you know, that was enormous solace for me. How long did it take you to get a sponsor and start working the steps? Um, Well, that's the part of my journey that, you know, really shapes who I am now because I always had a sponsor, but I Uh could not for the life of me find a sponsor that could take me through the steps. In fact, I didn't even know what a sponsor did, but none of the, my sponsors up until I was five years sober mm-hmm. would take me through the steps because they actually didn't know how to themselves. So I was lost. The The most important part of my recovery is that turning mm-hmm. point where, you know, I had hit a wall and, you know, mm-hmm. I was suffering anxiety, depression. It was really tough. And, you know, I thought sobriety sucks because mm-hmm. everything was so hard and 
I was sitting in a meeting and I was doing service, a lot of service, Mm -hmm. because I heard that was good for you. And I finally looked at the chair on one meeting one Saturday morning, and Mm -hmm. it's a guy that I was doing a lot of service with, and the thought came to me, I'm going to ask him to take me through the steps. And Mm -hmm. I went up to him and I said, you know, I don't want you to be my sponsor, but could you take me through the steps? Not Mm -hmm. knowing, you know, that that's what a sponsor did. And he said, I will be happy to take you through the steps, except you can take your sex conduct through with a woman. And he said, the only requirement for me sponsoring you is that you pass this on. That's really extraordinary. What strikes me about your story and what seems so incomprehensible based on my experience with AA in a city that's got a lot of AA and a lot of recovery, et cetera, et cetera, is how somebody could sit in AA for five years and there aren't any other people amongst the people who you might ask to be your sponsor, let's say the women in the room, who can take you through the steps. So the sponsor becomes a confidant, becomes somebody you call when you feel like taking a drink who might find a way to talk you out of it. But everything is done outside of the structure of actually working one through 12, right? Yes. That's why I say I don't give advice to any newcomers except Mm -hmm. find a sponsor that can take you through the steps as it was written in the big book. Mm -hmm. Not some, you know, standing on your head, answering a thousand questions, just how it was written in the big book. And that is my driving passion, you know, because it changed my life 180 degrees by doing Mm -hmm. the steps. Sounds to me like at five, you said five to seven years this was going on from the time you got this man to take you through the steps. Knowing what you knew about AA, that must have been really, really tough to sit in a place that's barren of people to help you work the steps. I mean, we're reading in the big book, we're we're hearing all over the place about people having sponsors taking them through the steps. That must have been incredibly discouraging. Oh, I didn't know any better. I was so sad because the last sponsor I had before Terry was starting to back away from me and I Mm. didn't understand why and she Mm. couldn't commit to a time during the week and she was starting to avoid my calls but yet she was turning up to meetings that I was going to with another sponsee and I couldn't nail her down. And I didn't realise till years later that I was asking her about the steps and Mm. she had never probably done the steps and she was 25 years sober. And I was devastated. I thought, what is wrong with me? Because she was a very Mm -hmm. intelligent woman and I admired her deeply and I thought, what is wrong with me? Why is she backing away? And I think it was the reality that she couldn't take me through the steps. And years yeah. later, I turned up to a meeting and heard her share and I just went, oh, my God, nothing has changed since I heard her eight years ago. And she was funny. She was witty. She was angry. and she only had her story to tell, not an experience with the steps. There was no recovery in her story. This is probably what was going on that many years back. So 
Here's a situation where somebody is has not worked the steps. They certainly probably have not had any kind of spiritual awakening because isn't that the 12 steps? We have that as the result of the first 11. Have you haven't done any of those. How, result. how the heck do you get to it? Yeah. yeah. How do you how do you get to that? Yeah. So so he helped you work through the steps. And how long did that take? And what was that experience like? So he sponsored me like I sponsor anyone else. And I think you'd probably find it common. You know, I would go to his place once a week mm-hmm, for an mm-hmm. hour. We would read through the big book. And then mm-hmm. when we got to the appropriate step, I would do that step. So sometimes mm-hmm. we just talk, you know, mm-hmm. for the majority of that time. So I think it took quite a while mm-hmm. to get through the steps. Um, you know, like it might have taken eight months you know, that hour, you know, I turned up to his place mm-hmm. and I stuck to that arrangement. You know, the spiritual awakening was of the educational variety because I've had spiritual mm-hmm. awakenings in my life of the sudden mm-hmm. variety. After he took me through the steps, then life happened. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he taught me a technique that I now share with others in in workshops. Uh One of my favourite speakers of all time is Sandy B. I just had him on nonstop play, you know, when I was going through some tough time. And he would often Mm -hmm. say, our job is to stay undisturbed. So my sponsor, before I got to step nine, would help me take a disturbance quickly through the steps, one through to 12, so I could get Mm -hmm. sanity without anything changing. And until I could get to understand how the steps work, he offered that to me to sort of say, what are you powerless over? What's unmanageable? You know, you come to believe that a power could relieve you of this insanity um, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to let God through that process and then take it from four through to 12. And that's where the spiritual awakening happened when I started slamming disturbances through the steps quickly mm. so that I could actually see what I couldn't see about my part. One extraordinary turn of events going from not having any help on the steps to learning yes. a technique that is absolutely invaluable when it comes to working with other people. What my sponsor told me early on was. You know, we sponsor other people to keep ourselves sober and to teach them how to sponsor other people. And that's it. It sounds to me like that has been a mission that you've been on. Is that a fair assessment? I definitely, because both my sponsor and I thought this is such a good opportunity to pass this on to other women so they can pass it on to other women so that nobody had to go through what I went through. That's been the case ever since. And, you know, my sponsees are now sponsoring other women. It's been passed on multiple times. And he ended up sponsoring a few women because out in rural Australia, pre COVID, mm-hmm. people couldn't get that kind of sponsorship on the ground in small towns. So sure. he would sponsor women so they could sponsor women out remotely. You know, and I still see those women, you know, passing it on. I'm forever grateful to that man. It sounds like phenomenal service work that he does, that he has helped you become involved with as well. 
I wanted to ask you about some of the big milestones in the last 20 years. You've, you've already shared with me about what it was like to live the first five to six, seven years without having real instruction on the steps. What have been some of the other milestones, let's say good and bad, during your sobriety? Yeah, so after I had been taken through the steps, I was in a job where I was getting bullied by my boss mm. and upwardly bullied by my staff and the mm-hmm. HR human resources director was a psychopath with me in her sights. It was the scariest part of my life and that's when I started to hammer the steps. That was the miracle of my recovery because I started to understand how the steps work. All of this misplaced security into the prestige of my position, what people thought of me, um, the fear around, you know, being ousted out of the organisation. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It wasn't just. And Mm -hmm. it was self-pity you know, run riot. And when you think about, you know, the resentment list, it was all the the clash of human instincts. You know, when people talk about jobs being really uh, stressful and fearful, when you think about a job, that's all the human instincts that we have rolled up into one, you know, the security roof over my head, you know, being part of a tribe, you know, the pride. Mm -hmm. It was the darkest period of my life and I'm sober. And that's when I had nothing left to do but to work the steps to, you know, get some kind of sanity. And That's where my sponsor stepped in. And the beauty of a sponsor like Terry is there's a consistency Mm -hmm. of message. I would call him in a panic and I would hear the consistent message, you know, so you're going out to get, so you're placing your security into your boss and the job and the Mm -hmm. promotion you want. And then he said, so have you just made your boss your higher power? and so forth. So I started taking my boss through the steps quickly Uh on a number of occasions. And then I found it, that the manifestations of my character defects, dishonesty, expectations, uh, uh, self-pity, self-centeredness, self-seeking was causing me more pain than the situation itself, how I was reacting to this. And I walked Mm -hmm. into freedom in that job because I let go and I handed everything over to my higher power for the first time in my life. And my sponsor would often say, you know, you go to meetings to get pushed closer to your higher power. You do the steps Mm -hmm. to push you closer to your higher power. That's the whole point. And for the first Mm -hmm. time in my life, I stood at the turning point and ask Mm -hmm. his protection and care with complete abandon. So if I could describe it, it was me going into a meeting with my higher power instead of trying to tell my higher power how it went after the meeting. And I would go into meetings that were very fraught without rehearsing Mm -hmm. because I took my Mm -hmm. higher power in. Fast forward to where I am now, I am six levels higher in my career I do mm. not work in fear and mm-hmm. I love what I do. So wow. I never thought you could do jobs 
the way I do today. I thought you had to work hard. You had to work in fear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my job is not what I do. It's how I do it. And that is a huge milestone for me in mm-hmm. the way I interact with life. So when I take sponsees quickly through the steps or people even outside of the program, you know, my mm-hmm. sisters, I take through the steps mm-hmm. and watch them get to the core of the problem mm-hmm. and the solution in, you know, one hour is mm-hmm. miraculous. And so, you know, the way Sandy B talks about it, you know, is God walks into the room. I tell <laughs> God, you know, well, this is happening, that's happening, and God says, well, let me take it. Yeah, but this is also happening. Well, let me take it. Are you God? Yeah. And I say, well, what am I supposed to do now? Go out and play. And that's well, the beauty of it. That's a beautiful That's a beautiful approach, and it's one that that has been real true for me over the years from early, early on in the program. Um, I had, I went without a sponsor for close to a year, but from the time I first got him, he was very, very emphatic with regard to bringing God into whatever situation where I had fear or trepidation or worry or was feeling angst or anger. And he'd always, and he'd always say, just ask God what to do, you know, let God direct your thinking, let God direct your th- the words that come out of your mouth. And and just know that, you know, you can be fired from a job, but you can't be fired from the universe, you know, and you can you can lose relationships, but you never lose God. And that I think yes. is something that a lot of people take for granted. And it's one of the reasons why I've enjoy doing these podcasts so much is because I'm hearing about spiritual awakenings over and over and over again. And and yours is particularly yes. inspiring to me today. It's a beautiful story. Let's say, this is imaginary right now, you could go back to the Christian at any point in your life with the knowledge that you have now, which Christian would you go back to and what would you say to her? Oh, um, quite often when I look back on my past, I just want to go back and give that Kristen a cuddle because Mm -hmm. I was doing the best that I could with what I had at the time. So Mm -hmm. a speaker said at a meeting that he was sitting in a rehab and this lady came in who was the speaker and she said, you know, if I could give you my recovery, I wouldn't. And the guy mm. was thinking, what a bitch, what a bitch, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and she said, Be- <laughs> because I, w- I wouldn't, I wouldn't rob you of the journey. And I think because I've had a spiritual experience of the educational variety, it's mm-hmm. stuck with me, you know, like I've probably had three awakenings in my life and they're fleeting Uh, You know, they give me an insight into how I can live, but they have been fleeting. When I look back on my life, I just had a reunion. All those friends that Mm -hmm. I hung out with, you know, partying and out in the bush doing extreme things. You know, we used to do it every 10 years, but now we do it every five years. And something Mm -hmm. struck me at the last reunion that I have so much love and happiness that I found AA because I get to go back. 
I've had a good life, you know, from that yeah. point, you know, like yeah. I've had my ups and downs, but yeah. I'm still standing. There are people that have fallen by the wayside. And I, if I'd kept drinking, I don't know whether I would have turned up to that reunion because my life mm. would have gone down the toilet <laughs> yeah, and I would have sure. had too much pride about the fact of where I am, you know, at 55. I mean, the toughest period was just, you know, it's darkest before the dawn is when yeah. I finally surrendered and realised that this was not going away. This was not getting better. And I wish mm -hmm. I could go back to the person and just sort of say, it's okay, you're an alcoholic, there is a solution. Yeah. And then let it play out from there. So, you know, yeah. you don't have to live your life like this. Your story is such an outstanding example of how AA can work when you're just willing to let go and let God. I mean, we don't yes. we don't say that lightly. For me, I have to keep reminding myself of it every single day because the minute I stop thinking about God and start thinking about something else, I'm immediately off the right track. And it's not always easy to do, but it's it's so nice to be able to, to hear your story and see what a really terrific impact AA has had on your life and your way of thinking. And I want to say thank you to you. And it's, I feel like I always w walk out of these interviews feeling like I know the person so much better. Yes. You can go to meetings with people for 20 years and you find out about their life in little five minute increments. And most of the increments yes. are the same thing time after time. So being able to sit down with you today has just been uh, incredible experience for me. And you're a really beautiful person. And as I tell all of my guests that I love you, yes. I want to thank you for doing the interview today, Kristen. Thank you so much for having oh, this conversation. Yeah. I've never had this experience and it's mm -hmm. actually drawn out stuff that I've never thought about in relationship to the program, the journey and my experience. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Kristen C., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Consider the hand of AA members reaching out to other alcoholics across the country and throughout the world. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.